on October 20th, 1982, I preached my very first sermon uh, to a group of about 70 senior adults who had come out for a Wednesday night worship service at First Baptist Church of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and those sweet folks could not have been uh, more kind to me that evening. Erlene Majunkin uh, came up to me with tears in her eyes, and by the way, senior adult Erlene Majunkin, I ran the math on it this morning, was three years younger than I am at this moment. Um, uh, she, she came up to me with tears in her eyes, and she said, I was the next Billy Graham. Um, uh, but, uh, but begging your pardon, Miss Erlene, it was terrible. I mean, by any objective standard, that little 13-minute message was terrible. But I did have this going for me. No one, after it was over, wanted to kill me. And after Jesus preached his first sermon, literally everybody in the town wanted to kill him. And we're going to read about that today in our passage from Luke. If you would please find Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Now, in full transparency, what we are about to read is not Jesus's first ever sermon. The previous verses actually tell us that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee after his temptation in the wilderness and that he taught in the synagogues of the towns that he passed through. And those verses also tell us that Jesus was so filled with the Spirit in his preaching that he began to gain glory for himself in the region. So when he returned to his hometown, there was a buzz. It was a big deal. He was a celebrated, invited guest in the synagogue episode that we are about to read concerning. But it was not Jesus' first sermon. It's just the first sermon of which we have a record. And Luke positions it in his book as thematic for his entire ministry, both in the content of the message that is preached and also in the response of many of the people to it. And so we're going to walk through these important verses together, beginning in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. Follow along with me. And he came to Nazareth. Where he'd been brought up, it was his hometown, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, reading again from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, the implication here is that Jesus was asked by the ruler of the synagogue as a hometown boy and as a preacher of renown to read from Scripture. And to make a comment. Now, there are actually, at this point in time in synagogue history, there are, there are two readings from Scripture, one from the law of Moses and then one from the prophets. But the law of Moses readings were prescribed like readings from a lectionary, if you're coming from a more high church background, meaning that certain passages were read on certain days. The reading of the prophets as Jesus did here, was at least left somewhat to the discretion of the one who had been asked to read and comment. 
And so Jesus chose this particular passage from Isaiah. So we have to ask, why did he choose this? Actually, what Luke is giving us here is kind of a summation of a broader section of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 58 through 61. So it's possible that Jesus only read the portions that Luke highlights here, or he could have read an extended passage. Either way, his choice of this part of Isaiah is significant because it is is a description of the nature of the kingdom that the Messiah, when he comes, will usher in. And we're told in this passage that it's a kingdom where the poor, people in desperate need of help, get the news that they have been waiting for, where captives, in context prisoners of war, that's what the word means, are set free, where the blind are made to see and the nation of Israel is set free from its oppressors. It would be a time where the Old Testament year of Jubilee is announced, a a once every 50 year event in Jewish life where debts are forgiven and slaves are set free. And in the Isaiah passage, the prophet Isaiah is saying that he has been sent to proclaim that this day is not here yet, but that it's coming. And that's the content of the passage that Jesus read. But then he preached his sermon on this passage. And when he preached his sermon on this passage, Jesus doesn't say that he is a prophet like Isaiah who has been sent to announce the coming of his kingdom. Instead, he says this in verse 21, which is a summary of more than what he said. You can tell that when it says, and he began to say to them. It means there's more there. But summary of it is this. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying that his very presence represents the fulfillment of the kingdom that the prophet Isaiah, from which he read, merely pronounced was coming. So Jesus is saying that it is he who the poor and the captives and the blind and the slaves and the indebted have been waiting for. It is he who the nation of Israel has been waiting for. And the response to the hometown boy saying this is is about what you would expect. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, "Is, is this not Joseph's son? I mentioned Erlene Majunkin came up to me after my first sermon, told me I was the next Billy Graham. Every preacher my age heard that from some sweet lady in his church after he preached his first sermon. But here's the deal. Miss Earlene didn't really believe that. I mean, I did not really believe that. Nor did anyone present that evening have any cause whatsoever to believe that. But let's say it went down like this. Let's say I preached my little sermon, and purely for the sake of argument, it was actually good. Let's say it was stellar, even. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that people were thoroughly impressed with what they heard. Let's say, for the sake of argument, people were riveted by what I said. And what if I had concluded that sermon with these words, on the basis of the sermon that I have just preached, I am here to announce to you that I am the next 
Billy Graham. Again, if it was really, really good, for a second, people might go, wow, maybe. But that would have quickly been overtaken with, wait, what? The next Billy Graham? Isn't, isn't that Ralph and Evelyn's boy? Don't they live north of town in Steely Holler? Steely Holler, if you got everybody in Steely Holler together in one room, you couldn't put together a full set of teeth. Billy Graham? I mean, if you got everybody in Steely Holler together and asked them to spell cat and spotted the C and the T, they wouldn't get it. Billy Graham from Steely Holler? Who does this kid think that he is? And that's exactly the response that Jesus gets in verse 22. Their initial response was, wow, that's pretty good. But that is quickly overtaken by who does this guy think he is? I mean, he's delusional. But, but this, this is what's important to note. That's not what makes people want to kill him. This isn't the scandal that is going to make everybody try to throw him off a cliff later. It's what he says next that makes them want to kill him. And we need to walk through what he says in order to understand why very carefully. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What, you, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So what Jesus is doing here is just kind of rhetorically voicing what he knows to be the mood of the room. You think you're the Messiah? Prove it. Do, do some of those miracles we heard that you have done in other places. I mean, they'd, they'd likely heard of Jesus' powerful ministry in the other towns of Galilee, perhaps with some skepticism because he was a hometown boy. So Jesus here is just acknowledging that the people are wanting a miracle from him to back up what he has just said about being the one who's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. And this leads him to say this, verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's this way of saying, it doesn't really matter what I do here. It's never going to be enough for you. I will never be more to you than Joseph and Mary's boy. So he's refusing to do a miracle, and he's blaming it on the skepticism of the people. But again, that is not what make people want to kill him. That's not what becomes a scandal in the community. It's this. It's what he says next, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, those are the words that lead people in the next verses to want to throw them off a cliff and lead him to make what Luke kind of ambiguously implies is a, is a miraculous escape. But the scandal of why that would set people off is completely lost on us. So we have to spend some time trying to connect the dots. Both the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian were Gentiles. 
people largely believed to be excluded from God's mercy. And yet the Old Testament records in both cases that they were recipients of God's blessings. The widow with food during the famine and Naaman with cleansing from his leprosy. But again, everybody knew that. That's not new information. But, but then Jesus makes the point. You know, there were a whole lot of hungry widows in Israel. There were a whole lot of lepers that needed to be cleansed. God didn't show mercy to them. He showed mercy to the Gentiles. Jesus is saying that in these cases, he showed mercy to Gentiles instead of showing mercy to the Jews. And when you pull back from all of this and add to it, Jesus is saying that he wouldn't do miraculous works in his hometown because of their skepticism, you understand that Jesus is making this broader point. Point being that people for whom the Messiah and the kingdom was meant would reject the Messiah and the kingdom, just as the hometown folks in Nazareth were rejecting the Messiah and the kingdom. And so the Messiah and the kingdom would go to the people that everyone thought didn't deserve it, the Gentiles. And that is what made people try to kill him. That's the scandal. And it still is. And it's that scandal that I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about this morning in two different ways. First, just looking back on this, we see that the scandal of Jesus in this passage is that grace was offered to outsiders. The Jewish people believed that they had exclusive rights to God and His mercy. So to hear that their ethnicity proved no merit to God and to hear that God would actually bypass them altogether to take his Messiah and mercy to people that they believed to be totally undeserving produced in them something akin to a spiritual rage. And yet God's message through The prophet Isaiah that Jesus read clearly shows that the undeserving were always central to God's program of redemption. Remember the list, the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the blind, the slave, and the indebted, beggars all. They were the very ones that the prophets announcing would would receive the coming of the kingdom as good news. The wealthy, the self-determined, the victorious, the whole, the free, and the lender not mentioned. Why? Well, it's not because... They were cut off completely from God's mercy. God's kingdom will be full of those who have an abundance, this room being an example of that. But the problem with having an abundance is that it's easy to think that you have everything. And so then you don't have to have an ear that is tuned to the good news of deliverance and mercy in God. You don't need good news just need a little help, need a little boost. You aren't desperate enough to listen to the gospel. And that's the point being made by the prophet. 
I mean, he was talking literally to the literal poor and the literal prisoner and the literal blind and the literal slave and the literal debt riddled, but he's also talking metaphorically to the poor in spirit and to the prisoner of their past and to the blind to hope and the slave to sin and the spiritually bankrupt. Those are the ones for whom the news of the kingdom of God is truly good news because they're desperate. They're desperate. And so to the desperate, Jesus went and bypassed the self-sufficient, bypassed those who believed that God's mercy was their right, but it wasn't something that belonged to others. That was the scandal of Jesus' day. The Jewish Messiah was going to people for whom the Jews believe the Messiah didn't belong. But it's also the scandal of today. Because you see, the scandal of Jesus is that grace is still offered to outsiders. And on one hand, we all should be grateful for that. Let's not forget that every single one of us gathered here are Gentile outsiders. Had we been alive in Christ's day, it is we who would have been thought undeserving of God's mercy. But here's a funny thing that happens when outsiders like us manage to make our way through the door of salvation. We have a tendency to slam the door shut behind us. Outsiders, once inside, wall off the gospel from those who we now insiders deem to be outsiders. And we are as scandalized as the first century residents of Nazareth at the mere suggestion that God's mercy is available for those who are not at all like us, which is code for less than us. Nancy Hanahan will always be near the top of the list of my favorite folks that I've ever pastored. Now, don't get me wrong, we'd tussle. I mean, we would go back and forth with emails and spar with one another regularly over politics and geopolitical events, but we loved each other. Bless her heart. She would walk out of church on Sunday mornings and reach up, and she'd pat my cheek and tell me how much she loved. I think she wanted to hit me some mornings, but, but she would do that. And so because of our relationship, I took the opportunity to pick at her one last time. That's what I do with people that I love. I pick at them. <laughs> and I took an opportunity to pick at her one last time when I did her funeral in November 2018. And if you knew Nancy, you knew she was a bigwig in Republican politics in our area. So I opened my message with these words. I said, by now, Nancy has had a few days to get over the shock that there are Democrats in heaven. <laughs> and everybody laughed, just like you did. Nancy would have laughed. But I did get an email from someone in attendance that afternoon who was quite certain that there would not be Democrats in heaven. <laughs> That's why Jesus continues to scandalize. His offer of grace crosses all the lines we draw. 
in our polarized world and finds people who commit to follow him who scandalize us. We deserve God's mercy, but we are scandalized when he offers it to others. Later on in Luke, he'll include a parable of Jesus whose main characters are a father and two sons. One son is the proverbial good kid, faithful to his dad, faithful to the estate. The other son is the proverbial bad kid, a disgrace to his dad and an embarrassment to his brother. The younger brother leaves, blows his money that his dad gives him and ruins his life. And when he wants to come home, his dad lets him. Just like that. But he doesn't just let him come home. He celebrates his arrival, throws a party, invites the community. And while the party is thumping, the older brother is seething. He doesn't want to share his home with the brother. Doesn't want to share his father with the brother. And in no uncertain terms, he lets his father know. To which his father replies, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Of course, of course, I would do that with my house. Grace to the undeserving is a scandal to those who believe themselves to be deserving. So Republicans think there shouldn't be Democrats in heaven and there's no shortage of Democrats who think there shouldn't be Republicans in heaven. There are Russian Christians who do not think that there should be Ukrainians in heaven and Ukrainian Christians who do not think that there should be Russians in heaven. There are Palestinian Christians who don't think there should be Israelis in heaven and there are Israeli Christians who don't think that there should be Palestinians in heaven. And maybe, just a little closer to home, there are wounded spouses who don't think that their exes should be in heaven. There are the abused who don't think that their repentant abusers should be in heaven. There are the bullied who do not think that their repentant bulliers should be in heaven. But what if God offered the same grace that you've received to the one that you vehemently oppose or who has wounded you deeply? And what if, hang with me here, your sense of being right on the issues and entitlement to your pain has blinded you to the fact that you are rejecting the good news altogether. You don't need good news. You deserve all of this. And what if God has bypassed you and all of your righteousness and deservedness and entitlement to offer salvation to people that you believe are beneath you? Do you feel that rush of blood? Feel that tightness in your chest? Do you feel that tendency to want to clench your fists? Then for the first time, you understand why people wanted to kill Jesus. You understand the scandal 
of his extravagant grace. And you know why on the day of judgment some will cry out, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. Jesus boldly declared himself to be the Messiah for all who would kneel before him as their king. And people tried to kill him. The scandal of Jesus was that grace was offered to outsiders. And the scandal of Jesus is that it still is. And he'll celebrate when they repent and turn to him. And he still does. And until you are ready to share heaven with people that you have drawn lines against, who have hurt you deeply, who don't, uh, who don't match up with you ideologically, unless you are ready to share heaven with that kind of person, then you don't understand really what it means to be swept up in the grace that Jesus offered. All of us here today are outsiders who are not worthy of the grace that God has shown us. And so we shouldn't for a second see others, those who currently trust in the false hope of woke liberalism or the false deliverance of freedom of sexual expression or the false gospel of Christian nationalism. We shouldn't for a second see them as unworthy of the same grace. That's the point that I think God has for us in this passage today. So my purpose has not been to oversimplify complex geopolitical issues and ethnic hostilities and culture wars or to minimize the deep pain that someone may have inflicted upon you or continues to inflict on you. I have simply attempted to show you that the neat and tidy Sunday school Jesus is at work in people with whom you might not be happy to share heaven. So maybe we should learn to view them through the same lens that Jesus did. The same lens with which he viewed us in our sin. And maybe, like someone did for us, we should extend the message of wildly scandalous, extravagant grace to those that we might not even like otherwise and hopes that they will be as open-armed with that grace as one day we were ourselves. Let's pray together.